O God, you who are the source of all light, by your word, you give light to the soul. You pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in the Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to know the beautiful things that pertain to life and holiness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we have a one-off today. I know we've been going through the book of Genesis, the first few chapters, but uh, although technically it is in the book of Genesis, uh, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. Again, that's Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32. You can turn to page 25 in the Pew Bible, and when you have found it, please stand for the reading of the word. Hear now the word of the Lord. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men but have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, yet my life had been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to ask you, when was the last time you had a sleepless night? Maybe a few of you might have had such night coming into here this morning. Maybe you're worried about something serious, and as much as you wanted to rest and prepare for the Lord's Day today, your mind just couldn't stop, and your heart was heavy. You wanted to trust in the Lord, yet sometimes it's really hard, isn't it? The crises that come to every believer, whether you lose your job, or you find out of an illness, or you're struggling with your wayward child, death of a loved one, or a friend that you know you walk with for so long in the faith, yet has walked away from the Lord in this deep unrepentant sin. So what do you do? In today's passage, we come to a familiar character by the name of Jacob, who also had a lot of things on his mind, and he couldn't sleep, and he found himself wrestling all night. The background of Genesis chapter 32, it's part of a larger narrative unit um, describing Jacob's experience in Haran. So it begins with chapter 28, when Jacob is about to leave the promised land, and now chapter 32, he's about to re-enter the promised land. And when he was about to leave, God appeared to him, in, where he named Bethel, and said, know that I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and bring you back to this land. In the Bible, Jacob had been a self-sufficient man, always grabbing whatever opportunities that he may hold his hand on. When he came into the world, he was grabbing his twin brother's heel, thus named Jacob, a 
heel grabber. He wanted to be first. He wanted the blessing of the firstborn. So for his life, he went after his brother. And if you remember, the first time he cheated his brother was out of his birthright over a bowl of lentil stew. And later on, when his father, Isaac, was in his late years, he deceived his blind father pretending to be Esau and stole the blessing of the firstborn. When Esau came back to the father asking, Father, don't you have anything for me? Father Isaac told Esau, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau's response was, is, is he not rightly named Jacob? Understandably, Esau, in his fury, wanted to kill his younger brother, Jacob. And Jacob had to flee for his life. And in his fleeing, that's where the Lord met him in a dream at Bethel. And in that dream, as he is running away for his life, leaving behind whatever that he knew, the only thing he knew, he saw a ladder with its top in the heavens, and angels of God ascending and descending, and God promising, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to the land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And this long journey, he finally arrives at the home of his uncle, Laban. Laban, like Jacob, was also greedy and a deceiver. But Jacob fell in love with Laban's beautiful daughter, Rachel, and worked for her for seven years. But as you might be familiar, on the wedding night, Laban switched the daughters, giving Leah, uh, forcing um, Jacob to work another seven years for Rachel. And after 14 years of hard work, Jacob agreed to continue working and asked for a wage of his own herd of sheep and goats. And Jacob would get speckled animals, but like Laban would, he removed these animals far, far away to make it impossible for him, for Jacob, to have these speckled animals. But through his own means, Jacob got the better of Laban and was able to have these animals. Laban later changed rules, changed wages from speckle to stripe, stripe to speckles. And later on, when Jacob had gathered so much wealth, he would tell his wives, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. He was exceedingly rich by this point. And it was at this point that Jacob decided to flee with his wealth and head back to the promised land. And it is at this point that we come to the border of the promised land. Jacob had parted with his uncle by the time we come to the beginning of chapter 32, because he came after Jacob when he left without letting him know. And they parted way by the time we begin chapter 32. And um, Jacob called this place... um, Galid, meaning witness heap, and it served as a boundary marker separating Jacob and Laban. And Laban said in his parting, this heap is a witness and this pillar a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. So basically, if you pass this boundary, then you're breaking the covenant and you are basically becoming an enemy and you can take arm and attack. So Jacob basically had no place to retreat. And here we are with chapter 32. Today, um, I will probably stay longest in the passage we read, verses 22 through 32. But leading up to it, um, there are five points, but leading up to it, um, I will look at uh, four other sections in the beginning of the chapter. First point, two camps. Second point, Jacob's messengers. Third point, the prayer. Fourth point, Jacob's messenger servants. And finally, the fifth point, the wrestling match. 
So we come to the beginning of the chapter, and it reads, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, God has sent angels to cover Jacob and his family. And it's a plural word, angels. And Jacob recognizes this as a camp, like a host, an army of God's angel going with him. All the wilderness years is bracketed, as I said earlier, with what happened in Bethel, and now what is happening here that he calls Mahanaim. He couldn't see God, but God had just as he did in the beginning, as he was leaving the promised land, as he's coming back, sent his angels to protect him. As Jacob's camp was moving, God's camp was moving with him, protecting him, defending him. He had nothing to worry. He didn't need to resort to like strategies of his own. He just had to trust in the unseen presence of God who had protected him all along in the past 20 years and now will continue to protect him even as he is about to face his brother Esau. But we are, let's admit, easily overwhelmed with what we see. When oppositions are visible, it's really easy for us to forget the unseen presence of the Lord. Reminiscence of Elisha's servant, that God had to open his eyes to see past the horses and chariots of the earthly opponents to recognize the chariots of fire that was surrounding him. Elijah said, those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And he was armed with that, he should have been armed with that assurance and be able to take on the world. God had been with him. But instead of being strengthened by the presence of the angels that had been camping next to him, instead of fearing God and God's angels, his fear of his brother was far greater. And thus the second point, Jacob's messengers. In verse 3, it reads, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. You know, this word that we see here, messengers, is actually the same word that we read just a couple of verses before. Angels and messengers are same Hebrew word. Instead of seeing the angelic messengers to strengthen him, knowing that God sent him these messengers, now he has to send out his own. He still has a bit to go to understand what it means to have our ultimate hope, not in ourselves, not in our smarts, but in God and God alone. Before when Isaac unknowingly blessed Jacob, thinking he was Esau, said, Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. And again, all his life, he wanted to be the Lord over his brother. He wanted the blessing of the first son. But here now, for the first time, Esau is seen as a Lord by Jacob, and Jacob calls Esau Lord, presenting himself as a servant. He's voluntarily reclaiming the position of the younger, which he has fought all his life to fight against. He wanted his brother to know of all the wealth he had accumulated. Why? Because he wanted to find favor in his sight, because he knew he didn't when he last left. And the messengers return in verse 6 to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. 
Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attack it, then the camp that is left will escape. It's a scary word to hear that his brother, with the last memory remaining with what he left with, is coming to greet him with 400 men. 400 men in the Old Testament was a way of saying a military unit. For Samuel, David, with his 400 fighting men, considered a military regiment. Now, Abraham, his grandfather, had 318 men who fought valiantly and was victorious. And Jacob, rightly, knew that this wasn't a hearty welcome, a huge party, but probably a medium-sized army to teach him a lesson once and for all. So what does he do? He divides his household and possession to two groups so that if one gets attacked, the other might survive. If you remember back just a few verses earlier, verse 1 and 2, Jacob had a vision of the angelic host presence, the two camps that he calls Mahanaim. Now, same words are used to describe the two camps that he divides. Forgetting that God's camp was right next to him, he sets up, splits up his camps into two. And thus doing, he weakens himself. And like many of us, we... When we stop looking to God, we find ourselves weakened, just as when Peter stopped looking at Jesus, he began to sing. When we look away from God, we weaken ourselves as the things around with what we see with our eyes begin to have greater power over us. Brothers and sisters, what are you looking at today when you find yourself wrestling all night God gives him grace, he turns to his way. And by God's grace, we turn to the third point, which is an amazing prayer that we see in verses 9 through 12. He should have prayed first, but he didn't. He should have turned to God, but after doing what he can scheme, he turns to prayer. And this is the first prayer that's recorded by Jacob, and it is the longest prayer in Genesis. Jacob has done a lot of talking in the past, religious talk, kind of our Christianese, like many of us, but he didn't pray. He, yes, received great visions, even called that place Bethel, but he didn't pray. He made a vow, but he didn't humble himself and pray to God. But this is a beautiful prayer. And Jacob said, Oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, but and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me. From the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as a sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob acknowledged the God of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac as a true God, calling him God, Elohim, calling him the covenant name, Jehovah, the Lord God. And he continued by confessing his unworthiness. It's the only way we can come, right? And he acknowledged of God's faithfulness and the blessing that he had. He only came with a staff when he left 20 years ago, and here he was. All of this, God has prospered him that he had to split it into two camps. 
But then he calls after the ask. This is, this is the heart of the ask. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he would attack, including his wife and children. But the most beautiful part is the way he closed the prayer. He bases his request on God's promise. What God said 20 years ago. That God will fulfill the promise he made. This is the time when not only does Jacob give the word and identify himself as a servant before Esau, but this is also when Jacob sees himself as a servant of the Lord God. And it's the beginning of a new Jacob, no longer self-sufficient, but instead confesses that he's not worthy, not only concerned about himself, but for others. And it's a beautiful prayer. It's a repentant prayer. But at the same time, Jacob still remains a schemer. He's still wealthy and rich. And he still, in a way, his way, tries to buy off Esau's anger with the presence that even a great king of his days would appreciate. When life throws difficulties at us, whether it's relational, job, family, health, we usually start by thinking, what can we do to make it better? I mean, after all, God gave us brain, and he gave us ways to do different things. He sends us great counselors. He gives us a new job. He provides us with medicine. But it's often after trying all that, when those things don't work, isn't that often when we turn to pray? Not as the first, submitting, recognizing God for who he is. So after this amazing prayer, we turn to the fourth point where we see Jacob's messenger servants being sent. 400 men are scary things to anticipate. And in his attempt to appease his brother, he sends gifts, lots of them. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. And with each group, as he sets them apart and sends them ahead of him, a servant is accompanying and is told to say, they are a present sent to my Lord Esau. Why? Because, as we see in verse 20, so that he may appease Esau with the present that goes ahead, and afterward that he shall see his face and perhaps Esau will accept him. Jacob does everything humanly possible, sending caravan after caravan of gifts. And the word gift here, by the way, is more precisely a tribute, something an inferior would send to a superior. Just as he's saying, servant, Lord, receive these tribute. 550 animals, a gift fit for a king. A gift larger than towns would likely pay in tribute to foreign kings. But despite all that, he still can't sleep. He's still not ready to face his brother. And that's when we see the wrestling match taking place, which is the fifth point, the wrestling match from verse 22 through 32. Jacob is a restless man. It's dark, and no one does anything in the dark, especially in the desert, but he couldn't sleep. So he gets up. He gets his family also up and moves him across the Jabbok, crossing of rivers, bodies of water we know is symbolic and important in Israel, history of the people of God. 
whether you're crossing the Red Sea or the Jordan River, here, Jabbok is what they're ready to cross as it borders the promised land. And if you listen to the word, Jabbok and Jacob, they're very similar, also in English, but also in Hebrew. Jacob is left alone, it says in verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until breaking of the day, all night, from dusk till daybreak. I don't know if anyone here ever wrestled. I know somebody has wrestled, um, but if you're not familiar with wrestling, at least in a high school level, I don't know if things change when you go to college, but there are three two-minute um, sessions. You, you wrestle for six minutes. Back in my days, I tried to wrestle in high school, but unlike soccer, where you could actually walk if you need to, in a wrestling match, you, you don't have a time to relax. You're on. And if you can last six minutes, you are spent. But here is this man not exactly the most pastoral thing to do for a man who's freaking out and jumps Jacob in the middle of the night with everything that he might be going through and wrestles him all night. But when the man, it says in verse 25, did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and his hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. If you want to try to take someone and undo their joint like their hip, you would have to put some massive amount of force. But this guy didn't throw him down. He didn't pick anything up and smack him, he just touched him. All this time, you, you, you see that he's been holding back. If he's able to just touch and dislocate the strongest part of a man's body, by the way, if you're a wrestler and you can't, put, you can't stand, you're done. If you can't hold your stance, you, you have lost. And this is what this unknown man does with a single touch after wrestling all night. Man touches him in the strongest part of Jacob's body to disable him. And this is what God often does with God's people. He has to touch the strongest, the strength of those people to remind us what we truly are, that we are weak. We don't have it in us. It doesn't say, but I think this is perhaps one of the places where I think Jacob knew that he wasn't wrestling with a human being, not a normal man, and the sun is about to come up, and he recognized this man has been holding back. You know, God doesn't play by our rules because he's sovereign. His will is done. And sooner we find out his will, sooner we can submit instead of trying to fight against him. And here's Jacob doing it all night. But the interesting thing is, it wasn't Jacob who wanted to wrestle with God, at least in this wrestling match. It was God who came to wrestle with Jacob and put Jacob under physical and spiritual submission. Reducing Jacob to this, finally recognizing his sense of nothingness, that he's a poor, helpless guy who has no way on his own. You see, all this time, Jacob thought he needed to prepare himself to face his brother, but the true battle wasn't Jacob against Esau, but it was Jacob against God. Because God was fighting for Jacob's soul, for his own glory. 
If you had a hard time sleeping recently because you have a lot of things on your heart, turn to him. Trust in him and obey him. No matter what happens the next day with Esau, Jacob knew it didn't matter. It wasn't important now. Jacob knew that he was before God, and it was his blessing that he needed. A regular person would probably think at this point, if he knew that he was in the presence of God, he can't see, it's dark. So if the sun is rising, you want to get out of there because no human before holy God can stay alive. But he didn't care. He knew he needed to be blessed by this man that he knew wasn't a normal man. And he clung to him. Before he clung to him with all the might he had, but now with his hip dislocated, he still sought his blessing. And seeking blessing was basically Jacob's entire life, right? He, his career was extracting blessing after another. But for the first time, he was at the right place, seeking blessing from the right person, God himself. Jacob had been struggling and striving against human opposition, using his craftiness. But only leaving a trail of broken relationships and needing to run away because you know you burnt too many bridges, afraid of what people would do. And it's now that he realized that the ultimate struggle that he had to face was struggle with God. Not with Esau, but with God. It wasn't Esau who's going to prevent him from entering the promised land. It's this holy God. It's this holy God that he should have been fearing, but he was fearing his brother. This man, still undisclosed, right, says, what is your name? And to this, Jacob responds, Jacob, God's not asking because he doesn't know. But finally, Jacob responds by essentially saying, I am a cheat, because that's what his name means. When Jesus is coming to Nathanael and John, he looks up to Nathanael and said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile is saying, behold, an Israelite in whom, in whom there is no Jacob, no guile, no cheat. Last time he was asked this question, his answer wasn't Jacob. His answer was Esau, because he was deceiving his father as he was trying to extract this blessing from his father before he died. But now he speaks the truth. You know, most of us, we don't realize how self-reliant we are until we find ourselves in that desperate place. When you are desperate and you know, like, you are at someone else's mercy, like, there's nothing you can do, you realize, man, I've been pretty self-reliant, and it's pretty scary to feel this way. It's when we lose control, when we lose our ability to plan or plot, we realize how self-sufficient and self-reliant we've been. Jacob struggles with God here. And that's what God's people will do. And that's what we are. We struggle. We fight against God. But the triumph of Jacob here is his victory over self as he surrenders to God. I think when God asks, or this man asks, what is your name? His response, Jacob, is essentially saying, I'm a selfish sinner who cheat to get what I want. Who won the match? 
Jacob wins. But through his weakness. Dr. Lloyd-Jones speaks of this as a perfect picture of what a Christian is. That when we are assured of God's acceptance of us, when we are confident of the blessing that we have in him, of his love, then he speaks of this, like the way God inflicts us with this permanent yet joyful weakness. Permanent joyful weakness that we have where we know who God is, we know we have his blessing, we know that he loves us, and we know we are defended by him, and we don't need to defend ourselves anymore. It is that humility that comes with boldness. And like Jacob, they're able to dance with a limp, with a crutch, because now you know But God also wins, because God always wins. But he voluntarily voluntarily held back his power as he curbed his incredible power wrestling. Kind of like, I can't do that with my boys as much these days, but when they're much younger and smaller and weaker, I'd have to just use a fraction. And they think they're like winning, but, you know, I just let them think they are. I just can't do that all night. Maybe like a couple of minutes now. But God voluntarily weakened himself to bring this lost sinner to himself. And the man said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Jacob has striven with humans his whole life from the womb to get that birthright with his father Isaac and deceiving him, Laban with all the trickery and treachery, and even his wife, chapter 30, uses very similar language, a different verb for wrestle. I think the word, there are three different Hebrew verbs. Um, the one that we read from the passage read are only they show up here, but different verb, but it says similar thing. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, referring to Leah, and have prevailed. So she called him Naphtali. This is what people do, right? We wrestle with people to prevail over. And Jacob has striven with God himself And he has prevailed. Yes, with a hip out of joint, can't quite stand, can't quite put any strength in it. But he has received God's blessing. No longer striving with deceit, but striving for God's blessing. And given this new name, Israel, a radical change in its nature. Israel means one who strives with God, but it also means God strives. I mean, Jacob strived with God, and he he won, as the man said. But God is the subject. It is God who strives. And we see this in seeing God coming to Jacob as we see the rest of history of Israel being played out. Unlike Abraham, who was once Abram, or Sarah, who was once Sarai, it's a variation of the same name, right? For Jacob, it's just total transformation. There's no similarity between Jacob and Israel. But like us, this sanctifying transformation is partial for Jacob, as we also know is partial for us until we see the Lord when he returns or until we die. Unlike Abraham and Sarah, once they're given new name, they never actually go back to old name. They're always called Abraham or Sarah. 
But even despite receiving this new name, Israel, the name continues to go back and forth between Jacob and Israel for Jacob. I think when I was looking at this chapter, for me, it kind of illustrates the tension of this this two, old self and new self, coming, resurfacing, as God continues to sanctify and show his grace. This two warring nature. One theologian speaks of Israel, the name, and Israel as the people. The story of Israel, the man, served as an act parable, as an acted parable of the life of the nation, in which is here presented its relation with God most prophetically. The patriarch, referring to Jacob Israel, portrays the real spirit of the nation to engage in the persistent struggle with God until emerging strong in the blessing. The nation is constantly referred to as Jacob or Israel, depending on which characteristics predominate. And he continues, the the point of the story of the nation of Israel entering the promised land will be significant. Israel's victory would come not by usual way by which nations gain power, no, but in the power of divine blessing. Martin Luther has a term, Latin term, seminal justice uh, peccator, simultaneously justified and sinner, the old and the new self, and God working, taking our entire life to work out and making us more like Christ. Meeting God in this instance did not leave Jacob comfortable. He spends his remaining life crippled. He's going to forever walk with a crutch. He'll never walk the same. He'll never have that same strength he had to fight for, to contend with. He's disabled from this point on. I wonder if we remember that or recognize that. And that's one of the reasons why the Israelites don't eat that meat, part of the socket that's connecting. And the chapter ends with Jacob recognizing who the identity is, calling this place Peniel, meaning face of God. Before Bethel, house of God, now Peniel, face of God. And both incidents take place at night where God reveals himself, reassures of his presence that he is with them. He says, I've seen God face to face. He's not saying literally he saw his face, but he had personal encounter with God because if he had, he would have been dead. And the word panaim or penuel as a place or uh, penuel later on, it's the same place referring to face repeated many times in this chapter, maybe at least seven times. And even in verse 20, 21, and later verse 30, the language, I will see his face with the present that goes ahead of my face. This is Jacob speaking of his brother Esau. Afterward, I will see his face again, and now he will lift up his face. So Jacob is so scared about seeing the face of his brother Esau. not knowing that it's God's face that he should be prepared and be afraid of. Jacob wanted a certain kind of blessing, and he was blessed. Perhaps not the blessing he wanted all his life, but the blessing he needed. And the things that you stay up all night wondering, worrying, wrestling with God, or just wrestling in general, My guess is our human nature is, God, take this hard situation disappear. Make this sad situation disappear. But God always comes back, saying he himself is the blessing. The giver is what we should seek. It took 20 years for God to bring this man to this place of total humility and commitment to follow God's will. And Jacob's limp shows that God has 
clearly knocked him out of self-sufficiency. Jacob, the Israel, knows, but so does everyone else around him who sees him walking this way. He's a changed person who is now finally ready to enter the promised land. And when he does later at Shechem, next chapter, he builds an altar like his grandfather and calls it El Eloi Israel, God, the God of Israel. There is no true blessing without brokenness. I know we went through this long time ago. It wasn't that long, I guess. But when we were going through Hebrews 11, verse 21 reads, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Why was he leaning over his staff? Because he was crippled. That's how he lived the rest of his life, with a crutch. Yet he's blessing, he's worshiping, he's following as he continues to lean. Brothers and sisters, have you learned to lean or are you still standing on your two feet? If God hasn't humbled you, he will. Jacob, this self-sufficient man who wasn't ready to enter the promised land until the Lord changed his name and his character to Israel. We look at him and we know we are just like him. When God liberated Israel from Egypt, called them to be holy, set apart, but it was Israel, like Jacob, who rebelled against God and went on its own way. Recently, we read through Numbers 13, and when the 12 tribal leaders were sent to check out the Promised Land as spies, they came back with bad reports, unfavorable reports, saying the land devours its inhabitants. They're humongous. We're like grasshoppers. Can't do it. They're looking at themselves, what they can do, what they can't do, instead of looking and trusting God. So what does God do? Those 10, with an exception of Caleb and Joshua, they die, and those generations who follow those 10 will not be able to enter the promised land because they're only looking at what they can do, not what God has done and what God has committed to do in his covenant Israel will continue to rely or try to rely on God, but revert back to old Jacob nature. And that's much of the Old Testament. Jesus says, it is impossible for a self-sufficient person to enter the kingdom of God. In Matthew 19, truly, truly, I tell you, it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier actually for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a person who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yes, we receive the kingdom. It's only by grace. It's a gift. So self-sufficient, self-made people cannot inherit. But at the same time, Jesus does say, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive through the narrow door. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the narrow door. You know, God the Son endured in a different kind of wrestling match. A long, agonizing assault of holy God the Father so that his people might be able to be blessed and be restored back to the Father. He wrestled with man in his life and he wrestled with God on our behalf. In his final hour, as he wrestled with God in the garden, crying out, even as blood was dripping, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And continue to wrestle on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Lord didn't hold back 
the way he held back when he wrestled Jacob. He placed the entire weight of humanity's sin upon Christ. Yet it is through his death, his suffering, that we have life. Jesus is the true Israel because in his full struggle with God and man has overcome to give us abundant life. He struggled on the cross so that our struggle would bear much fruit for his glory. You know, people speak of language of seeing God face to face. But remember, Jacob didn't come out like, like healthy, at least physically. He's forever limping. And my hope and prayer is that as we are wrestling in whatever season of life, struggling, suffering, that we look at that, recognizing that God is using that to bring glory to himself and make us more like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, he is with us. Remember, as he was about to ascend, I will always be with you. And may that give us the kind of courage to live this life that he has given us for his glory. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your patient waiting, not using your full power against us, but instead putting the full weight of sin against your son, Jesus Christ, so that we might receive the true blessing of knowing you, being with you, serving you, being restored back to our creator. Lord, there are those of us here who have never truly repented. We've spoken Christianese growing up in church. But like Jacob, we've done a lot of Christian things, but we haven't humbled ourselves and prayed to you. Have mercy on us. And for those of us like Jacob who keep, find ourselves turning to old ways, instead of looking at you, looking at our resources, Grant us the grace and the discipline to look to you again for your glory and our good. Let us take time now to lift up our hearts to the Lord with humility.